0: So we're gonna go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, By way of introduction, it it occurred to me, actually this morning, uh, that as a former uh, professional concert musician, one of our jobs was to find the beauty uh, and the interesting parts of the music that we're learning and prepare it in such a way that we can communicate it effectively to the audience. And uh, again, it occurred to me that there's a similarity here doing this, that as we're reading through passages of Scripture, and we're tasked with teaching it, that it's a similar job, where we have to find the beauty, right, and the important parts of that passage and figure out a way uh, to communicate that uh, to, the, to the listeners. Uh, so that's what makes this uh, challenging, but also very uh, rewarding, uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to stand up here and do this. Uh, So getting right into it, we're going to be looking at Judges 13 uh, today. Uh, And the way I'm going to go through this today, I do encourage everybody to go ahead and turn to that passage uh, to follow along. And you'll see why later. So I'm not surprising anyone, uh, I assume, uh, when I say that Samson and the events of the next few chapters uh, of Judges is among the more well known in the Bible. Uh, we all know about his exploits, uh, his weaknesses, hair, his hairstyles, his affinity for jawbones, right? Uh, and this is something that we remember pretty well. What's interesting about this chapter, however, is this is kind of, uh, and, and uh, Jeff Turner actually pointed this out to me, this is kind of the opposite of uh, Paul Harvey and the rest of the story, in that this is. The beginning of the story. And so not as many of us are as familiar with how it all started. So before we get into the chapter, I think it will be helpful to remind ourselves uh, a, a little bit about Samson. So, first of all, if if the basic problem of judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, then Samson is a prime example of that. Uh, Samson was the twelfth and last judge. Uh, Samson he lived around the beginning of the 11th century BC, uh, probably around 50 years before Saul becomes king. Uh, he was famously strong, but he was also famously flawed. And so, how exactly did these flaws manifest? Well, two things come to mind immediately. First, he was inappropriately entangled with the very people against whom he fought. And then, two, he violated several commandments um, and his Nazarite vows. And we'll get into that here in a minute. So in a way, Samson is a microcosm of Israel during this period. Uh, They both had these tragic yet heroic traits. They were used by God for deliverance. Uh, They occasionally called on God for help. Yet his life or their life was one of continued unfaithfulness, unfortunately. So as we start this chapter, we're going to see the same old verbiage about Israel's apostasy. Um, However, the rest of the chapter is a little atypical. Uh, And this is why I'm going to do this a little bit differently today. Uh, It's a little bit atypical as we get this long introduction uh, into how this whole thing with Samson starts. Uh, We'll hear about his parents. Uh, We're going to hear about the angel of the Lord. Uh, and his announcement uh, to the parents about Samson and his mission. It's made clear that Samson is to be used by the Lord against the Philistines. Uh, And we're also going to hear how Samson, despite being used by the Lord in this way, is not going to follow God's instructions as he should. And finally, before we read through the chapter, uh, it's also interesting to note that the writer himself uses the name Lord Yahweh, but everyone in the account says God, just kind of a generic God, Uh, except, because a couple exceptions, except the angel uh, in 1316 uh, and Manoah's wife in 1323, Uh, and both of those they use, they do use the word for Yahweh, Uh, and then in 138, Manoah uses the word Lord, For Adonai. But otherwise, everyone is just using a generic word for God. And this is important because it is yet another sign of Israel's problems uh, that they rarely use the distinctive name of Israel's God in chapters 13 through 16. So at this point, I want to go ahead and read through the passage. If everybody could uh, turn with me to Judges 13. Uh, And before we do so, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we uh, are thankful for this opportunity this morning uh, to uh, fellowship among believers and have the opportunity uh, to hold your word in our hands, Lord. Thank you for uh, giving us uh, in this day the freedom to be able to hold your word, read your word, and study from it. Uh, I ask that you will uh, enlighten our hearts as we study this word and bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is Judges. 13, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold. You are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah started, or excuse me, and Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it as wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahaneh Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. What I'm going to do is briefly go through this verse by verse. Again, this is a little bit of a different type of passage, so this is a a, a way that I think would be helpful to do this. Um, so we're going to go verse by verse, see what we can learn about it, uh, and also to see what we can learn from it. Uh, and as I go, please follow along with the verses as I talk about them. I'm not, I'm not going to reread all of them, but just, just have them there to reference as we as we talk about the verses. Uh, there is a rather small cast of characters Uh, so it's going to be easy to remember um, all the characters. We have Manoah, and he will be Samson's father. We have the woman. This is the unnamed woman who will be Samson's mother. And then we have the angel of the Lord, and that one's pretty self-explanatory. So looking in verse 1, again we see in verse 1 the typical statement about Israel's apostasy. How typical? Well, by way of review. I going to have to indulge me on this. And you don't have to turn to these passages. I'm moving fast. Chapter 3, verse 7. This is all in Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashroth. 3.12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahu died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And now, ours for uh, today again. 13.1, uh, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So how is it that their hearts so consistently and quickly turn away from the Lord? Well, another way to ask this question is this. How is it that our hearts turn away so quickly and consistent, consistently from the Lord? Scripture gives us an answer to this. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seven twenty four. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And finally, Mark seven twenty 20-23, um, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And unfortunately, this is a small sample again. Um, I had a friend at work a few years ago. I had made a comment uh, in passing. We were having a little minor theological discussion. And I made this comment about um, our sin nature. And he looks at me and he says, oh, you're such a Presbyterian. And I I assured him that I did not in fact get that out of my Presbyterian handbook. That this actually comes from the Bible. And I told him, you know, I'm a nice guy. I told him if he had a free hour and a half I could read through some of the passages in the Bible that talks about our bent towards sin. Um, uh, Unfortunately, he said he had an appointment to go to. So, uh, maybe another time. We know that the enemies of Israel have hurt her in a variety of ways. Uh, These... Uh, These ways become more subtle, yet more destructive. After the Moabite invasion from chapter 3, the Canaanite cruelty from chapter 4, the Midianite devastation from chapter 6, what worse can the Philistines do to the people of God? Well, the Samson saga will tell us to be given into the hand of the Philistines. And that that this means that the Israelites fraternized with them, even to the point of intermarrying with them. Israel had totally sold out to the values of the Philistine world. They were deliberately, and this is important, they were deliberately blurring the distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. Looking in verse 2. Here the writer begins with what seems, at least for the moment, a completely unrelated story. It has a real... Um, shall we say, storybook feel to it, uh, kind of similar to the openings of the book of Ruth and 1 Samuel. Here we see seemingly out of nowhere, uh, there was a certain man of Zora, Where? Whose name was Manoah. Who? Now we know this is the background of, uh, to the call of Samson, but it's certainly a unique follow-up to uh, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, So then who is Manoah and his wife? We don't know much. Uh, In fact, with his wife, uh, even though she is mentioned no less than 19 times between 13.2 and 14.9, we are never given her name. Even Manoah refers to her as this woman. And this is not disrespect, this is on purpose. Uh, There is something about her name, too, uh, that is perhaps too important to mention. Uh, One of the commentators states that her very obscurity is an intrinsic part of the story. So she is barren, uh, and therefore, obviously, the woman and Manoah are both childless. So God's promise, therefore, of the birth of a son comes to most unlikely people. Again, similar, but not the same uh, as another account we might be familiar with. Looking in verse 3, So with all the colorful and entertaining parts of the Samson account, it's easy to get caught up in thinking about and trying to picture Samson, just how big were his biceps, right? Um, However, this verse is important, verse 3, this verse is important because it is a reminder that this is not about Samson. This is about the Lord and his work. This, this, This is what should be memorable and most noteworthy to us. It is he, it is the Lord who is setting all of this up. So God's angel appeared in a Danite home in the village of Zorah uh, to announce to the couple the birth of a child that would be a savior, savior of Israel. And then we, we, we do have to remind ourselves that this is Judges 13, not Luke 1, right? Uh, the, parallel, the parallel is not a coincidence. There's not a lot of coincidences uh, in, the, in the Bible, are there? Uh, In fact, one of my favorite responses when somebody tries to tell me, oh, 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 it was just a coincidence. I like to say, coincidence? I've seen a lot of strange things in this world, but never one of those. An interesting point about this angel is that, of course, uh, the appearance was awesome, uh, but his essential character was not to be revealed. We see in verse 6 that the angel does not give a name, And then in verses 17 and 18, Manoah asked the angel's name, and the angel responded, not with his name, but with a question, why do you ask my name? And then in verses 4 and 5, this motive of the barren woman is a recurring theme in scriptures, isn't it? Uh, Some some examples, Uh, Sarah anguished over her childlessness, Genesis 11 through 21. Rebecca's first 20 years of marriage were childless, Genesis Genesis 25. Rachel was both barren and green with envy until she at last gave birth to Joseph, Genesis 29 and 30. Then after Samson, there's Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and Elizabeth in Luke 1. All right, so then moving down uh, into the verse a little bit uh, in 4 and 5, real quickly, what is a Nazarite? The best way to answer that question is to read through number 6. Uh, And I want to give you a second to turn there real quick. I think this would be valuable to look at. So we're going to turn to number six and read the first 18 verses, or excuse me, eight verses or so. Despite what others may say, um, I believe that reading along uh, while it's being read to you, reading along yourself can be helpful for understanding and for attention. Uh, And sometimes the more senses we involve, the better. Anyway, so this is Numbers uh, chapter 6, starting from the beginning. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. "...until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy." To the Lord, and then skipping ahead to verse thirteen, and this is the law for the Nazarite: when the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then it goes on and on and on to talk about what should happen after that time is completed. All right. So, uh, and then you're welcome to switch back now to uh, to, to judges. So, essentially, any man or woman. Uh, could take a vow to become a Nazarite. It was to be, and, and, and remember this: it was to be uh, for a limited time, and it was to be voluntary. Uh, this vow came with three provisions: one, abstinence from wine, strong drink, or anything associated with the vine; two, no cutting of the hair; and three, no contact with the dead, i.e., a corpse. If a person did become unclean, there were elaborate cleaning uh, rituals to become clean again. Now, to us, this seems a little unusual, uh, maybe maybe even a little arbitrary, you know, grapes, carcasses, and haircuts. But, as always, the sign is not so important as what it signifies. In this case, saying no to these things is not as important as saying yes to something more important. The the dedication of himself or herself to God in a very special and particular way. And this is what is certainly more important uh, than than the hairstyles themselves. Uh, And notice verse 4 again. Not only is Samson to say no to these things, but his mother is told to say no to these things. Right? Now think about what this means. There's There's several different ways that we could go with this. Uh, but not the least of which is that the unborn baby in the womb is to say no, as it were, right, to these things as well. Meaning, he's already set apart even at or before conception. It's interesting. So based on this and what you know about Samson, you might recognize that there are three unusual uh, things about Samson and this vow. All right. Uh, first, he did not take it voluntarily, right? Remember, it had to be taken voluntarily. He didn't take it voluntarily. It was, verses 5 and 7, his lot from the womb. Second, it was not for a limited time, it was to last until the day of his death, verse 7. And three, he broke every one of its stipulations, right? Um, his hair was cut, chapter 16, 17, and 19. He associated with the dead. 14, 6 through 9, and 15, 15. And he probably drank at his wedding feast, uh, chapter 14, 10 through 20. So in case the words probably drank are not convincing enough, uh, the Hebrew word mishte used for feasts in that passage is one that refers to a feast particularly known for the consumption of alcohol. Um, and uh, just, just as a funny side note, uh, I, I wanted to confirm that. So I went to our uh, professor of Hebrew where I work, And uh, to ask him about it, and he confirmed that. Um, And he's normally a very dry guy, like he never shows emotion or excitement. But boy, when I asked him a question about Hebrew, he just lit up. And then he he even grabbed my legal pad and starts showing me, this is how you write it in Hebrew, and this is why you write it this way. So it gave me a lot of respect for what Pastor David and the others here that are are learning Hebrew are going through. Um, uh, But uh, again, that feast was particularly known for the consumption of alcohol. So sticking with Samson's flaws and his limited success, um, note in verse 5, this is really an important word. Um, note in verse 5 where it says that he will begin to save Israel. This explains why the Philistines were still enemies of Israel in the days of Samuel, uh, Saul, and David. Moving ahead to verse 6 and 7, you see the words, a man of God. Man of God designates prophets elsewhere in the Old Testament mostly, right? Right? Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 1 Samuel 2, 1 Kings 17. Um, So at first, Samson's mother may have thought that she was talking with a prophet. That's still pretty impressive. But then she soon realized that this was someone greater. In fact, as we see in verse 18, the angel's name was too wonderful to comprehend. So the angel told the wife, the wife told the husband, and you might wonder if the husband was the least bit skeptical of his wife's story. Maybe. Um, but maybe not. Uh, I mean, it seems to me uh, that he probably wasn't, and and you'll see this in a minute. In fact, in a way, he kind of reminds me of Nathaniel um, from the gospel account where it was said of him that he was an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. I love that description. I would love for people to be able to say that about me. Um, So like his wife, he believes the message. In verse eight, Clearly, Manoah is also willing to obey the instructions from the man of God. So it's possible he wanted confirmation of the visitor's words, but it is certain that he wanted instructions on raising a child with such a mission as this. And don't take lightly the fact that God heard his prayer. Don't take it for granted that God does hear our prayers. Uh, The psalmists don't. If I may read for you a couple. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Psalm 28, to you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. As one commentator put it, and I quote, We may have relegated God's hearing our prayers to our, of course, category, but biblical prayers do not regard it as so routine. Rather, Yahweh's hearing is the most crucial matter for all prayer. Moving up to verses 9 and 10, the angel does return, showing that God delights to answer that kind of straightforward prayer. Uh, Again, the angel comes to the woman. Uh, And then she calls out to her husband. And then in verse 11, uh, Manoah runs to meet the angel. And then in verses 12 through 14, the angel, and and this is important to note, the angel gives the same statement that he gave previously to the woman. Uh, He does not give more details about Samson. So like before, uh, this is more about the parents rather than the child. So even though we don't learn much about Samson here, we do see a couple who are sincere in their faith and believe, they believe what they're told. Also, and I like this part, also they inquire, right? Uh, Not out of skepticism, but in order to obey better. Uh, And that took courage, right? And it also took humility. Uh, Two things that all believers need. Uh, One commentator puts it this way. God never scorns honest doubt or the desire to know more. And the reappearance of the angel in the next section takes his and our understanding of God's intervention a stage further. But it is still stressed twice that the obedience, that obedience is required even without uh, the extra knowledge we might think we need. Three quick verses that come to mind here, and listen closely to how this relates. First, Deuteronomy 29.29. Anybody by chance have that one memorized? Yeah? All right, all right, well done. Everybody hear that? That's right, that's right. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Now think about what that means, though. Um, It means the things that are not revealed do not belong to us, right? Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Mark 9, 24. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, and listen here, help my unbelief. This is something that we should all ask for. Help me in my unbelief. All right, moving up to verse 15, Manoah did not know what he was dealing with still, and this brings Hebrews 13 to mind. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Manoah and his wife are not fools, uh, but they're also limited in their knowledge, uh, particularly in the plans of God, which are not within their capacity to know or to understand. So it's this limitation that's important to the account because, again, it shows the sovereignty of God uh, in his plans and in the execution of those plans through his people. So like with Gideon, when victory comes, it's clearly God's victory, right? Verse 16, this should have been a clue, looking at what happens in verse 16, this should have been a clue to Manoah that something was different about this man Uh, So again, his limitation here is evident. The angel of the Lord is only willing to wait for one thing, a burnt offering by which Manoah can show his gratitude to God. Um, I often think and believe that thankfulness is perhaps the way in which we express our our faith most clearly. Uh, Sometimes we get so caught up in things of value that we uh, forget about or ignore things of of eternal value. Uh, One commentator put it this way. Heaven is concerned about time to thank, time to worship, time to reflect on the nature of God, to rejoice in His goodness, and enjoy His friendship, end quote. Verses 17 and 18. So still labor, uh, Manoah is laboring under a lack of understanding of who this is. Uh, so Manoah asks his name. And why does the angel not give a name? Because it is too wonderful to comprehend. This takes me to uh, Psalm 139. So, why all of this about a name? We have to remember that in Hebrew thought, the name reveals the nature, right? It's not so much like that today, is it? Uh, sometimes Bubba is just Bubba, right? And that's okay. That's all right. All right. Uh, verse 19 one who works wonders. Uh, just FYI, this is the same root as wonderful in verse 18. Verses 20 and 21. It is here. <laughs> that they grasp the situation finally, right? Uh, it's definitely a dramatic and a rapid way to learn uh, who they're dealing with. And so, how do they respond? They fall on their faces, just like the people of Israel when victory comes, and acknowledge that His name is dot dot dot. Wonderful. Verse twenty-two. Manoah's fears are similar to those of Gideon when he encountered the angel of the Lord. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 6, real quickly. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Genesis 32:30. 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Exodus 33:20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So in verses 23 and 24, it's obvious here that Mrs. Manoah has a better handle of the situation than Mr. Manoah. The angel promised something, uh, that they would have a child. You can't have a child if you're dead, right? And so, and like Gideon in chapter 6, to see and hear the angel of the Lord meant, in effect, to see and hear the Lord himself. The Lord has opened his mouth and he will not go back on his word. So remember this as you read scriptures, uh, particularly his promises to us. Verse 25, this of course means that God's spirit was pushing Samson toward the work that God wanted him to do. Uh, The Old Testament often speaks of God's Spirit acting on individuals. Uh, When it happens, it's usually to empower them for some type of work or some type of service for the whole people of God. In Judges alone, we get the following examples of this real quickly. 3.10, the Spirit is upon Othniel. 11.29, 11.29, the Spirit is upon Jephthah. 6.34, the Spirit clothed Gideon. 13.25, the Spirit stirred Samson, and then the Spirit rushes on him in 14.6 and 19 and 15.14. The Spirit also rushes on Saul in 1 Samuel 10 and 11 and on David in 1 Samuel 16. So it's important to remember that when the Spirit is working in our lives, that He's working uh, and, you, and you go back and you think to romans eight twenty eight right but he 's working for the good of those who love him all right he's he 's using us for the service uh, to bring glory to him and to serve uh his people so thus ends the ends the uh chapter 13 uh, narrative here. So what seemed at first like an unrelated story uh, becomes part of, and I love the way this commentator puts it. I love it when a commentator can say something poignant with very few words, right? It's efficient. He says this about Judges 13 in the whole book of Judges. He says, the main line, that, that this chapter is the main line that traverses all the territory of Judges. I want us to see and remember, uh, as we look back on 13, right, because all Scripture is profitable. I want us to see and remember the faithfulness of Manoah and his wife. God works in us and through us uh, in ways we don't always fully understand, but we are called to be faithful with what's in front of us, right? Now I want to step back for a minute and, ta- and see, uh, we'll put it this way, see what kind of God it is that we see here through all of this uh, in 13. No doubt many sermons and lessons have been taught or given over the characteristics of Samson, uh, both good and bad. You know, kind of the what, what to do and what not to do kind of thing. Um, I heard a, a Navy SEAL once say uh, that, uh, you, that he, he, learned, he could learn two things from every person he ever met, what to do and what not to do, right? Um, and we should hear. But there's that temptation to focus only on that. But we need to be sure that our understanding of Samson is only from what is in the text, all right? not from ideas imposed from the outside. And we need to see for sure what it is that God is doing in this chapter. Uh, Samson was a flawed man for sure. Uh, we're all flawed. Amen? Anytime, anytime we look at man's natural character or motivation, we see that it is dominated uh, by selfishness, lust, spite, vengeance, pride, and just stubborn foolishness. But what does God do? He intervenes for his people, and he continues to do so. So the more important thing to see in this passage is the sovereignty of God, isn't it? It's the sovereignty of God as he works out his will uh, through these characters we read about, but also through us. So while Israel continues in a steady decline, God is showing that he is persistent in preserving and directing his people. In a review of this chapter, Joel Beakey makes the point that God planned to deliver his people. And hear this, he planned to deliver his people from the Philistines before they even cried out for help. Uh, As Reformed believers, we see this in the order of salvation. Before we were conceived, God prepared the way for his son to suffer and die for us. This was laid out from all eternity. And this should lead us to lift praises to God with thanksgiving and humility. Uh, 1 John 4:19. we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So the Lord is omnipotent, all-powerful to deliver us from our enemies. But let's also see that not only is He omnipotent, He is also imminent. Right, And that's immanent with an A, not imminent with an I. Uh, This word with an A comes from the Latin immanens, which means to remain in. It refers to something that is a natural part of an organism or an organization. So in modern parlance, we might say it's baked in. When we talk about God as immanent, it basically means omnipresent. And this is the key point on that. This is as opposed to God being only distant and unknowable our God is not only distant and unknowable so when God intervenes it's not a ad hoc let's put a band-aid on a mistake type of intervention Uh, one commentator said it's not a divine crisis management right instead God has a plan far in advance we know this And this should frankly put us on our knees to think about the greater than Samson, as it were, who ransomed us at such cost. First Peter 9.20 He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So it's a wonderful and mysterious thing to think that something that happened before in the beginning uh, could be for my sake. And for your sake, and because of this, we can take great comfort in knowing that the Lord will be with us and not fell us in our struggles of life. I mean, can we really doubt that? Uh, given that the very Son of God took our very nature, uh, dwelled with us, and died for us, Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. A couple of years ago, Joe Fowler stood up here and said, You need to memorize that verse. Uh, I took him up on it, and I did. And it's been most helpful. It's a beautiful verse. Um, and uh, this same Son who gave Himself for me, who gave Himself for you, according to several commentators, was the angel of the Lord who announced the birth of Samson to Manoah and the woman. And this son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8. May we all take great comfort uh, in his promises uh, and in his word, which was given to us and to our children forever. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we praise you for your name. We thank you for uh, being both omnipotent and imminent. You are always with us in a real and special way. Thank you for your providence in preserving and directing your people. I ask that you will be with us this morning as we come to you in worship. Help us to do so in spirit and truth, and let it be a beautiful sound in your ear. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.